You're listening to the Catholic Fragments Podcast, where we explore the treasures of Catholicism, the fullness of truth revealed in Jesus Christ and His Church. I'm your host, Dr. Donald Wallenfang, and I invite you to join me in gathering up the fragments of the truth that sets us free. Pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. One of the seven angels who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He took me in spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It gleamed with the splendor of God. Its radiance was like that of a precious stone, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a massive high wall with twelve gates where twelve angels were stationed and on which names were inscribed the names of the twelve tribes of the Israelites. There were three gates facing east, three north, three south, and three west. The wall of the city had twelve courses of stones as its foundation, on which were inscribed the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. St. Augustine, pray for us. St. Monica, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Catholic Fragments Podcast. I'm Dr. Donald Wallenfang, and what a joy to return to the writings of St. Augustine of Hippo, this time to one of his voluminous masterpieces, called The City of God Against the Pagans. It was a work composed over the course of 13 years toward the end of his life. The City of God altogether expresses a simple yet powerful point. You cannot have one foot in and the other foot outside the City of God. That is the church. It's all or nothing. St. Augustine writes, In the one city, love of God has been given pride of place, and in the other, love of self. St. Augustine helps us to confront those hidden demons that lure us to the city of self as Almighty and to return to the city of God as our true home and refuge. So let us begin by supplying a bit of context surrounding St. Augustine's masterpiece, and then read in comments on a tremendously insightful fragment of Book 14 of The City of God. St. Augustine began writing this work in the year 413 and published it finally in 426, only four years before his death in the year 430. What is the backstory for this book, we might wonder? Well, in the year 384, the Roman Emperor Theodosius I had abolished the worship of Rome's ancient pantheon of gods and goddesses, 
and established Christianity as the official religion of the empire. Next, what happened is the city of Rome became gradually under siege and finally sacked, that is, plundered, by King Alaric and the Visigoths 26 years later in the year 410. St. Augustine wrote the City of God as a response, as a kind of apologetic to the rising aristocratic accusation that Rome had been overtaken by the Visigoths precisely because of its new alliance with Christianity, a religion that promotes meekness, humility, forgiveness, self-sacrifice, and even love of one's own enemies. The City of God is addressed to St. Augustine's friend, Marcellinus, who served as a Roman civil servant and who wrote to the Bishop of Hippo expressing the suspicion that the political and military fortunes of Rome were in decline due to its assimilation of Christianity. So St. Augustine composes the City of God to argue that it is not due to Christianity that Rome suffers invasion and defeat, and neither is it due to pagan worship that Rome prospers. In fact, Rome endured many calamities and defeats prior to its adoption of Christianity as the religion of the empire. Augustine's concern is with truth and juxtaposing the city of God with the city of Satan and the self. He does so over the course of 22 sections, or so-called books, that altogether comprise the city of God. In this podcast episode, I want to focus on just a fragment, chapters 13, 14, and 15 of book 14 of Augustine's City of God. So I'll read and offer commentary along the way. It's remarkable theology. St. Augustine writes, It was in secret that Adam and Eve began to be evil. And in Latin, he's writing in Latin originally, in secret, in occulto. Occulto. That Adam and Eve began to be evil. And it was because of this that they were then able to fall into overt disobedience. For they would not have arrived at the evil act had not an evil will preceded it. Moreover, what but pride, in Latin, superbia, can have been the beginning of their evil will? And then he quotes from the book of Sirach, chapter 10, for pride is the beginning of sin. Superbia, in Latin, where we get the English word superb. It's very interesting. St. Augustine always locates pride as the heart of the evil will. A will, the creaturely will bent away from God toward evil, toward nothingness. And what is pride, he asks, but an appetite for a perverse kind of elevation. For it is a perverse kind of elevation indeed to forsake the foundation upon which the mind should rest and to become and remain, as it were, one's own foundation. It's a great line that he has there, and it's the self supplanting God as foundation for being, which makes no sense because we don't have our being from ourselves. We didn't choose or elect to exist, yet here we are. So it's from an elsewhere, an elsewhere that we call God. But this supplanting of God as foundation 
and the self taking this place occurs, he says, when a man is too well pleased with himself. And he is too well pleased with himself when he falls away from that immutable good, bono immutabili, with which he ought rather to have been pleased than with himself. So Augustine is saying, we should be pleased as creatures, as human beings above all, by the immutable good. Immutable good that is God. That is a good that doesn't change. That is not prone to evil and decay and disintegration like a creature is. But this betrayal of the immutable good, St. Augustine says, occurs as an act of free will. For if the will had remained unshaken in its love of that higher and immutable good, amore superaris immutabilis boni, that higher and immutable good, by which is bestowed upon it the light, by which it can see and the fire by which it can love, it would not have turned aside from this good to follow its own pleasure. Ah, for the will to remain unshaken in its love of that higher and immutable good is the solution against sinning. Consequently, St. Augustine says, the will would not then have been so darkened and chilled as to allow the woman to believe that the serpent had truly spoken, and the man both to place his wife's wish above God's command, and to think it a venial transgression, to refuse to forsake his life's companion, even though he thereby became her companion in sin. So St. Augustine describing original sin that we read in Genesis chapter 3 the darkening of the will of both Adam and Eve to fall prey to the illusion of the serpent, the voice of temptation, the voice of Satan, the ringleader of the fallen angels. Thus the evil act, that is the transgression of eating the forbidden fruit, was done only by human beings who were already evil. Such an evil fruit could have come only from a corrupted tree. Moreover, the corruption of that tree came about contrary to nature because it certainly could not have happened without a defect in the will. And such a defect is against nature. But only a nature created out of nothing could have been perverted by a defect. Thus, though the existence of the will as a nature is due to its creation by God, its falling away from its nature is due to its creation out of nothing. Wow, this is profound theology by St. Augustine in his poetic trademarks of expressing these timeless truths. But St. Augustine locates original sin even before the act of eating, the will's decision to turn from God which is, in a sense, consummated in the act of eating. When we turn from God, we fall away from being, from life, from love, from community. And St. Augustine reasons that this falling away is due to the creaturely nature as having come into being from nothing, out of nothing, creatio ex nihilo, to be created from nothing by God. The evil doesn't come from God, who is goodness itself. But when we sin, we decline toward the nothingness out of which we were made. 
God overcomes nothingness by creating us. But when we sin, we fall. I want to say move, but it's not it's not moving in terms of a positive progression, but it's it's a fall, it's a lapse back toward nothingness. Nothingness, a lack of purposeful activity, a lack of a will that seeks what is good because it's the will giving up on the good. It is so paradoxical that pride entices the will toward nothingness. When one is inflated in pride, it's in being inflated with nothing, which is really sad. This is why, again, St. Augustine quotes from the book of Sirach, also called Ecclesiasticus in Latin, chapter 10, Initium enim omnis peccati superbia est. That is to say, pride is the beginning of sin. Superbia is the beginning of sin. To claim to know better than God, to claim to know better than the teachings of his church, to claim to know better than the Master Jesus Christ himself and his will to establish his one holy Catholic and apostolic church on earth to guide us in all truth through scripture and the living tradition of the church. St. Augustine goes on, To be sure, man did not fall away from his nature so completely as to lose all being. When he turned towards himself, however, his being became less complete than when he clung to him who exists supremely. That is God. Thus to forsake God and to exist in oneself, that is to be pleased with oneself, is not immediately to lose all being, but it is to come closer to nothingness. This is why, according to Holy Scripture, the proud are called by another name in the second letter of St. Peter, chapter 2, verse 10. They are called self-willed. The Greek is autadeis, and the Latin sibi placentes. To be self-willed, or to be pleased by oneself with oneself. As St. Augustine is really going after this self-pleasure, to be pleased with oneself, to be pleased with what one has accomplished, to look in the mirror and, and think, I'm really someone special because of what I've done. But the truth about our being is we can't take credit for anything about our existence. There's nothing any one of us did to exist, to have being, to be found in this drama between good and evil, to be able to strive for the good. It's all gift. And this is what St. Augustine, the theologian of grace, notices about everything. It's all gift. It's all grace. So we have to give credit where credit is due. The foundation, this highest immutable good, God. St. Augustine goes on, For it is good to lift up your hearts, not to self, however, which is pride, but to the Lord. This is obedience, which can belong only to the humble obedience. In a remarkable way, therefore, there is in humility something which exalts the mind and something in exaltation which abases it. It may indeed seem paradoxical to say that exaltation abases and humility exalts. Godly humility, however, makes the mind subject to what is superior to it. But nothing is superior to God, and that is why humility exalts the mind by making it subject to God. Exaltation, on the other hand, superbia, again, pride, is a vice. 
and for that very reason it spurns subjection, and so falls away from him who has no superior, that is God. Thus it is cast down, and brings to pass what is written in Psalm 73, Thou castedst them down while they were being exalted. It does not say when they had been exalted, as if they were first exalted and then cast down. Rather, they were cast down even while they were being exalted. Their very exaltation was itself a kind of abasement. This is why humility is most highly praised in the city of God and commended to the city of God during its pilgrimage in this world. And it is especially exemplified in that city's king, who is Christ. We are also taught by the Holy Scriptures that the vice of exaltation, the opposite of this virtue, holds complete sway over Christ's adversary, the devil. Certainly this is the great difference that distinguishes the two cities of which we are speaking. The one is a fellowship of godly men, and the other of the ungodly, and each has its own angels belonging to it. In the one city, love of God has been given pride of place, and in the other, love of self. So it's this amor dei, love of God, versus this amor sui, love of self. Just as Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and mammon. What's meant by this mammon too is being self-serving. You cannot both serve God and serve yourself. Go about life just serving yourself. Love of God is meant to triumph over love of self in a paradoxical way. Not that the self is destroyed or annihilated, but that the self is redeemed precisely through self-forgetfulness and self-donation. Augustine goes on, It is clear, therefore, that the devil would not have been able to lure man into the manifest and open sin of doing what God had prohibited had not man already begun to be pleased with himself. That is why Adam was delighted when it was said, Ye shall be as gods, when the serpent says this. But Adam and Eve would have been better fitted to resemble gods if they had clung in obedience to the highest and true ground of their being, namely God, and not in their pride made themselves their own ground. For created gods are gods not in their own true nature, but by participation in the true God. So well put. By striving after more, man is diminished. When he takes delight in his own self-sufficiency, he falls away from the one who truly suffices him. Mm, Augustine is masterful with words to communicate the truth. He says further, The first evil came then when man began to be pleased with himself, as if he were his own light. For he then turned away from that light, which, if only he had been pleased with it instead, would have made the man himself a light, that is, the Lumen Christi, the light of Christ. This evil, I say, came first in secret, in occulto. And then there followed the other evil, which was committed openly. For what is written is true, quoting Proverbs chapter 18, verse 12, Before a fall the heart of a man is haughty, and before honor is humility. The fall that happens in secret precedes the fall that occurs in full view, 
though the former fall is not recognized as such. For who thinks of exaltation as a fall, even though the falling away was already there, and the guilty desertion of the Most High? On the other hand, who could fail to see that there is a fall when there is an evident and indubitable transgression of a commandment? So Augustine's talking about the interior fall and the exterior evidence of what is ultimately an interior fall. So interior fall, exterior fall, and the failure of, to observe the commandment of God. But the interior fall comes first, the will's desertion of the will of God. St. Augustine goes on, This was the reason why God forbade an act which after it had been committed could not be defended by any imagined justification. And I venture to say that it is a benefit to the proud that they should fall into some open and manifest sin, which can cause them to be displeased with themselves, even after they have already fallen through being pleased with themselves. Peter's condition was more wholesome when he wept than when he was pleased with himself and presumptuous. It's a beautiful, again, paradoxical phenomenon that Jesus founds his church on the rock of St. Peter. This is, the word Peter comes from the Greek Petros, which is a translation of the Aramaic Kepha. We see the transliteration of Kepha in St. Paul's letters when he says Cephas. But Kepha in Aramaic, the language Jesus is speaking, means rock and in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 16, upon Peter's confession of faith in Christ, Jesus gives him a new name. He was called Simon. He, he says, you, you shall be called Kepha. And we say Peter from the Greek New Testament, Petros, which means rock, because on this rock I will build my church. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Peter is the first pope, the first vicar of Christ on earth, representative of Christ on earth, the head of the church, without which there is no living body. And so Jesus establishes this office of pontifex of pope, pontifex bridge between God and man as head of the church and ensures that the teaching of the Pope and all the bishops in union with the Pope around the world will never fail in the areas of faith concerning God's revelation and morality, the practical consequences of this revelation that always is in harmony with reason. And yet Peter was a man who denied Jesus. He sinned. He denied Jesus in his darkest hour. And yet Jesus, upon rising from the dead, restores this charge to Peter, feed my sheep. Tend my sheep, feed my lambs, we read at the end of the Gospel of St. John. And so Jesus founds his church on mercy. Mercy is the bond of authority in the church. St. Augustine goes on, the Holy Psalm 83 also says, Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. That is, let those who are pleased with themselves when they sought their own name be pleased with thee as they seek thine. So St. Augustine is saying that it comes as a benefit to the proud when they fall into some open and manifest public sin so that they become displeased with themselves and ashamed of themselves for what they did and embarrassed and humiliated because this generates humility. This itself generates a more merciful heart 
This itself leads to being pleased with God alone and not with the emptiness and nothingness of oneself. Then quickly moving into just a couple more quotes from chapters 14 and 15 of book 14 of the City of God. St. Augustine writes, Even worse and more damnable is the pride which seeks refuge in an excuse, even when the sins are plain to see. As with the first human beings, when the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Nowhere here is there heard any petition for pardon, and nowhere any plea for healing. So this is doubly worse when after sinning and being convicted of sin, someone looks for an excuse, an alibi, instead of owning what they did wrong when it comes to oneself. To admit, to confess they sinned, to have contrition and repent of that sin. Then in chapter 15, we read, to state it briefly then, in the punishment of that sin, that original sin, St. Augustine's still talking about, what is the retribution for disobedience, if not disobedience itself? Now, this is very interesting. It's so true how he's going to describe what happens when we sin. For what is man's misery, if not simply his own disobedience to himself? So that because he would not do what he could, he now cannot do what he would. Oh, my goodness. Okay, let's keep, let's keep listening and I'll unpack this more. For although in paradise before sin, man could not do everything, he did not at that time wish to do anything that he could not do, and therefore he could do all that he wished. Now, however, as we observe in the offspring of the first man, and as the Bible attests in Psalm 144, man is like to vanity. For who can count the many things that a man wishes to do but cannot? Mm. Is that true for you? I know it's true for me. Numberless are the things I would like to do, but I cannot, because I strive after so much vanity. For he is disobedient to himself, that is, his very mind, and even his lower part, his flesh, do not obey his will. That's the line right there. St. Augustine is saying, we have become disobedient to ourselves. Those of us who are so pleased with ourselves, who wanted to exalt ourselves, <laughs> the result we're not even obedient to ourselves, our own selves. We have, we have a divided self, like St. Paul talks about in Romans chapters 6 through 8. I do what I don't want. What kind of freedom is that? <laughs> I don't even do what I want to do, but I do precisely what I don't want to do. St. Augustine, finishing this out. Even against his will, his mind is often troubled, and his flesh endures pain, grows old, and dies, and suffers all manner of things, which we should not suffer against our will if nature were in every way and in all its parts obedient to our will. Mm. As St. Paul says, the wages of sin is death. And it's something we can't avoid no matter how hard we try. And our flesh itself isn't obedient to our will, which says, I don't want to die. And the flesh is like, too bad. <laughs> you already betrayed yourself. So you have to die, but the good news is that through death, we can be redeemed through Christ. If we return to the source of grace, if we return to the will of God the Father. St. Augustine offers us a masterful analysis of original sin and our understanding of the difference between the city of God 
and the city of the self, being pleased with God rather than pleased with ourselves. To avoid this fallback toward nothingness, where we used to be not, and instead let ourselves be lifted by the grace toward the fullness of being, the higher and immutable good, our sure rock foundation, that is God, through obedience to his will. So may we heed St. Augustine's admonition to renounce the city of Satan and self-sufficiency, turning back to the city of the servant king, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we resist the voracious vortex of nothingness by obedience to the perfect will of God the Father, accompanied by the grace that he supplies to accomplish his providential purpose. Thank you for joining me on the Catholic Fragments podcast, where you are equipped to think toward the whole, to pray from the heart, and to live as a witness.